welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, and to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. Well, greetings. My name is Andy Nacelli, and my wife Jenny and our four daughters are here in the front row, ages 15 to 6. It's a joy to be with you. I recognize many of your faces from when some of you were part of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Moundsview, North Campus. Uh, you may have heard we have a new name now, the North Church. So we used to be one church, three campuses, and we're all independent now. So we send you a warm greetings from the North Church in Moundsview. It's a joy to be with you. And our text this morning, uh, Ardell just read, is from Romans 11.36. I have some slides to show you this morning as I'm, as I'm speaking. And what you're looking at right here is uh, what is on canvas above the fireplace in our family room. So I asked one of my friends to design Romans 11.36 for us because it's my favorite passage in Scripture. I love this passage. Uh, from him and through him. And to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. So this passage teaches that God is supreme. God is supreme. So to say that God is supreme means that God is superior to everyone else, to everything else, infinitely superior. So God has no rivals. He is Unique. So let's listen to some, some scripture passages that teach that there's no one like God. So Moses said, There is no one like the Lord our God. God is unique. The Lord said to Moses in Exodus 9, There is none like me in all the earth. In Deuteronomy 33, Moses said, There is none like God who rides through the heavens to your help through the skies in his majesty in 2nd Samuel 7 King David prayed you are great O Lord God for there is none like you and there's no God besides you God declares through Isaiah I am God and there is no other I am God and there is none like me. And Jeremiah prays, There's none like you. None like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. So we say that God is superior to everyone and everything, because there's no one like him. There's nothing you can compare him to. I teach systematic theology to our seminary students, and every year I teach on the Trinity. 
And every year, somebody raises his hand and says, is this a good analogy for the Trinity? Is it like this? And no, that's actually a certain kind of heresy. No, that's actually another kind of heresy. No, There's no analogy for the Trinity. There's no one like him. There's nothing like him. There's nothing analogous to God. He's unique. There's no one like the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's in the class by himself. So here's a, a pocket definition of the universe. The universe is everything that is not God. God is supreme over everything that is not God. God is supreme over the universe. So the title of this sermon is God is Supreme. God is Supreme. And that's the main point of this text. Our text, Romans 11:36. From him, through him, to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now before I get to that exulting part of the passage... I want to just back up a little bit and just briefly look over the whole passage that Ardell read a moment ago. Romans 11, 33 to 36. Now, I'll explain what this is after I read it. Um, so let's just read it for first. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who is given a gift to him that he might be repaid. And then here's our text. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So this passage has three sections or stanzas. I'll show you. First is verse 33. And the second is verses 34 and 35. And the third is the first part of verse 36. Okay? So those are the three sections. And in each section, there are three components, which I number in brackets on the screen there. It's beautiful symmetry. So in verse 33 at the top, God is the main point is God is deep and inscrutable. It's the main idea there. There are three exclamations saying God is deep, his riches are deep, uh, his judges are unsearchable, his ways are inscrutable. And then the next word in verse 34 is four. And that tips you off that this second stanza is supporting the first one. And it does that by exulting in three specific reasons that God is deep and inscrutable. And it's three questions that are rhetorical. And the force of a rhetorical question is a statement. It's a proposition. So the force of this first question is, no one has known the mind of the Lord. God is incomprehensible. And this second question, who's been his counselor? No one has been his counselor. God is without counselors. And this third question, who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? No one has given a gift to God that he might be repaid. God is without creditors. That's the message of those three rhetorical questions in that second stanza, that second section. And these characteristics of God share at least two implications. One is that God's attributes are humbling to us. The idea that he knows everything and doesn't need us and no one can counsel him and no one can give him something. So that's humbling. And it's also gloriously praiseworthy. And that's why Paul moves to this third section. The first word of verse 36 is for. So we're ready to focus on verse 36 now. The message is God is supreme. And we have three prepositional phrases from, through, to. And the are all things goes with all three of them. From him are all things. Through him are all things. To him are all things. These 
these three prepositional phrases support the three rhetorical questions that we just looked at, which support the three exclamations. It's beautiful how, how uh, Paul designed this passage. So let's, let's consider verse 36 in four parts. We'll look first at the three prepositional phrases, from him, through him, to him, and then finally we'll look at that concluding statement. So those are the, the four uh, ways we'll, we'll think about this text together. So let's start with the first one. From him are all things, and I'm summarizing it this way. God is the source of all things. God is the supreme creator. So listen to some other scripture passages that teach this, that God is the source of all things. 1 Corinthians 8, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things. 1 Corinthians 11, all things are from God. Colossians 1, Paul says of Christ, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then Hebrews 1, God has spoken to us by his Son, through whom also he created the world. So God created all things. He's the supreme creator. And you know this. This is all over scripture. So let, I'm going to read some more scripture passages. So let this truth just wash over you. Uh, let this be in your bones that you believe this. First words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the supreme creator. Psalm 33. Or actually, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He made it. You see something glorious in creation? You praise God for that. Now Psalm 33. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Isaiah 44. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. And Jeremiah, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. So you look at the universe, aspects of this world, and you marvel at how great it is. You should be marveling at, at someone else, at someone else's understanding, at someone else's wisdom, at someone else's power. When I uh, teach on creation in my systematic theology courses, I show them a 23-minute video called Created Cosmos. So I first saw this years ago at the Creation Museum down in Kentucky. You remember this, girls? We watched this together earlier this year. So it's a, like a planetarium. And uh, I show it because it just helps get a sense of how big the universe is and how small we are. So what the video does, it explains sizes and distances in a stunning way. And my favorite part is the end of the video. Any of you seen this video, by the way? One or two of you. Okay, so imagine this. Um, at the end of the video, so after exploring the vast universe as we know it at this point in time, the video is it's, it's zoomed way out as far as the, the bounds of, the, of this universe as we know it. And then what it does is it zooms in by a factor of 10 
every four seconds. So it's zooming through galaxy after galaxy, and then it finally enters our Milky Way galaxy with billions of stars, and then it reaches our solar system, and then it pauses and says, see that faint star over there? That's our sun. And, and then uh, the Earth is, a, is visible finally as this little teeny dot, and then the, vid- the video zooms all the way down to Earth. It's really remarkable. When you think of yourself in relation to the rest of the universe, how do you feel? You should feel really small because you are. That's how you're supposed to feel because that's reality. You are small and God is infinite. So here's here's one of many passages. You read this. How does this make you feel? Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Just, Just look at the second line there. Marked off the heavens with a span. You know what a span is? It's the distance between your outstretched pinky and thumb. It doesn't say like two spans, just a span. It marked off the heavens with a span. You read something like that, and the effect it should have on you is, wow, God is really big, and I'm really small. And you just meditate on, on this, that God is creator, and you think, God created not only the heavens, he created everything that is not God. So meditate with me for a moment here about this. Uh, God created Minnesota's beautiful North Shore. Start there. We like to go there every year. God created firm purple grapes that burst in your mouth when you bite into them. One of my favorite foods. God created human beings as either male or female such that they are interdependent and can't live without each other really brilliant. God created the human body, the eye, the thumb, the ear, the foot, the immune system, the ingenious combination of bone and blood and muscles and fat and hair. God created the ant and elephant, the goldfish and whales, ponds and oceans, tropical islands and the North Pole, the Nile River, the longest in Africa. God created the flatlands in Kansas, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota. God created the Grand Canyon. God created the Rocky Mountains and the Sunset Cliffs in San Diego, California. God created every natural resource, including water, air, coal, oil, natural gas, phosphorus, copper, iron, salt, timber. God created chicken and beef and broccoli, tuna, potatoes, and watermelon, and the ingredients for sourdough bread, and ice cream, and brownies, and guacamole, and chips. My daughter just went, "Mm." (laughs) mmm. God created humans with the ability to create with what God created. So God created the materials for a truck or a smartphone or king-size mattresses or a climate-controlled building or plumbing to get clean water and to eliminate sewage. 
God created every good gift that you enjoy. Every one of them. Think of something you enjoy. That's a gift from God if you can enjoy it without sinning. He's the source of every special grace you enjoy, such as forgiven sins. And he's the source of every common grace you enjoy, such as breathing clean air and drinking clean water. God created the world and everything in it. He created everything that's not God. He created it all. He designed it all. That's one reason I love to watch good nature documentaries. Unfortunately, most of them refer to you know, evolutionary biology and naturalism as if it's fact. That really bothers me. But that aside, uh, a good nature documentary is a worship video. It really is. We love watching those, except sometimes my daughters don't like the violent parts. Uh, but we love learning about animals that we don't normally see. I mean, it could be something as mundane as how do bananas grow? Or how does a mushroom work? Or what are the ways of salmon or bears or eagles or rainforests or deserts or certain kinds of trees? It's The more you study something, the more you go, wow, that's way more complex than I realized. And it's, it's brilliant. And God did that. God designed that. And because God created us, he owns us and we're accountable to him. Here's a way to put it. God created you, therefore he owns you, and you owe him. That's true for every one of us. So friend, if you're not gladly worshiping and following God the creator, God will hold you accountable for that. But there's good news about God the creator, which we just celebrated as we uh, had this uh, bread and wine together. There's good news that Jesus, the Son of God, lived, died, and rose again for sinners. That God will save you if you turn from your sins and trust him. So from him are all things. God is the source of all things. He's the supreme creator. That's number one. Number two, through him are all things. Through him are all things. God is the means of all things. God is the supreme king. God is the means of all things. He's the supreme king. So listen to some other passages that that say this basic truth, that through him are all things, that God is the means of all things. This is what Paul says of Christ in Colossians 1. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Ephesians 4, there's one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. In Hebrews 1, the Son upholds the universe by the word of his power, or by his powerful word. And the author of Hebrews describes the Son in chapter 2. He says, by whom all things exist. So to say that God is the means of all things is to say that He's the supreme sustainer. In him, all things hold together. Or to put it another way, you say God is supremely sovereign. God is the supreme king. And this theme is all over scripture. Let me show you some of it. 1 Chronicles 16 says, Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice, and let them say among the nation, The Lord reigns. That's true, whether you acknowledge it or not. The Lord reigns. 
Psalm 47, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And Daniel 4.25, the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And God's sovereignty is not just general, as some of my Christian friends would say. It's just general. No, it's specific. It's meticulous. It's absolute. God sovereignly rules over even the evil that humans freely choose to commit. So God's sovereignty and human responsibility are compatible. I'll show you a few passages of Scripture that support what I just said. So Joseph says in Genesis 50, explaining to his brothers, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Same verb, meant and meant. You meant evil, God meant good. Isaiah 45, the Lord says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And Amos proclaimed, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And there are a lot of objections that philosophers can have at this point. So my favorite place to go to, to illustrate this and show how important it is to believe that humans freely choose evil and that God ordained it is to go to these two passages in Acts 2 and 4. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Implication, some of you are guilty for crucifying Jesus. And that crucifixion was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. They're both true. They're both compatible. Also Acts 4. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The same truth. God has a plan that he predestined from the beginning. And people who do evil do it freely and are responsible for that evil. Both are true. So the all-good God is supremely sovereign over all things. So again, uh, listen with me as I just meditate on this, that the all-good God is supremely sovereign over all things. God is supremely sovereign, to get specific, over every single respiratory droplet and airborne particle that transmits COVID-19. God is supremely sovereign over the Milky Way galaxy and every other galaxy beyond ours, every planet, every star, every moon, every square inch of outer space. God is supremely sovereign over every water droplet, every snowflake, every fire ember, every gust of wind. R.C. Sproul, who's with the Lord now, used to say that if God is sovereign, then there's no maverick molecule. I like that. 
by the way, we often say something like, it's raining or it's snowing. That's not how the Bible normally speaks. Normally, Scripture says something like, God causes it to rain or God causes it to snow. God is supremely sovereign even over the weather. God is supremely sovereign over natural evil, including sickness and cancer, disability, physical injuries, animal suffering, floods, avalanches, tornadoes, tsunamis, fatal accidents, fatal diseases, famines. That's why we sing a line from an Isaac Watts hymn, Clouds arise and tempests blow by order from your throne. You know that line? It's it's a hymn called I Sing the Mighty Power of God. God is supremely sovereign over every nation, including the United States of America and Canada and Mexico and England and China and North Korea and Afghanistan and Kenya and Brazil and Australia. God is supremely sovereign over every human ruler, including Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. God is supremely sovereign over good angels, including the archangel Michael. God is supremely sovereign over demons, including our enemy, the devil, Satan, the snake, and the dragon. God is supremely sovereign over the scheming of your enemies and dishonest politicians and thieves. But I repeat myself there. Uh, Dishonest politicians and thieves. Um, God is supremely sovereign over evil systems of thought that view relationships primarily through the lens of power. That is, that those with more power are inherently oppressors, and those with less power are inherently oppressed. I'm guessing that, what was the title? Four Horses of the Woke Apocalypse? I don't know what the four horses are, but that's got to be part of it. Okay. Uh, God is supremely sovereign over false accusations that damage your reputation. God is supremely sovereign over choosing to save you. We call that election. God is supremely sovereign over causing you to be born again, regeneration. God is supremely sovereign over giving you the gift of repentance and faith, conversion. God is supremely sovereign over declaring you to be righteous through Christ, justification. And God is supremely sovereign over making you a member of his family, adoption. God's supremely sovereign over transforming you into the image of Christ, progressive sanctification. And God is supremely sovereign over enabling you to continue to depend on him and to mature in Christ. Perseverance through him are all things. I could keep going. I have to stop somewhere, but I'll stop there. Through him are all things. God's the means of all things. He's the supreme king. That's number two. So from him are all things. Through him are all things. Number three, to him are all things. To him are all things. God is the end of all things. God is the supreme goal. God is the end of all things. The supreme goal. Again, listen to some other scripture passages that teach that God is the end of all things. 1 Corinthians 8, there is one God, the Father, for whom we exist. We exist for him. Colossians 1, Paul says of Christ, all things were created through him, and not just through him, but also for him. All things are created for him. He's the end of all things. And then Hebrews 2, the author of Hebrews describes the Son for whom and by whom all things exist. All things exist for him. God is the end of all things. But tragically, 
Most people do not live as if that's true. I've adapted this table from a book called Ethics as Worship. So uh, on the left, the, the heading is what or who is the ultimate goal or purpose that drives how you live. And the, the second side is who or what has ultimate moral status or who or what do you functionally worship. So there are four basic views. Number one, uh, the ultimate goal could be caring for yourself, your personal happiness, pleasure, or satisfaction, which means that you're functionally worshiping yourself. Number two, uh, could be your ultimate goal is caring for humans, whether a subset like your family or humanity in general. Functionally, you're worshiping humans. Or third, uh, your ultimate goal could be caring for all living things and their environment, which means you're functionally worshiping all living things and their environment. Or, and yeah, this is the right answer, it could be that your ultimate goal is glorifying God by enjoying Him. You're functionally worshiping God. My point in showing you this is that everyone worships. Everyone's a worshiper. The question is who or what are you worshiping? And God commands us, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Because God is the ultimate end of all things. It means everything else has value as it relates to God. God's the supreme goal. And this is precisely the opposite of what our culture's entertainment media preaches. And yes, it does preach. So God didn't design you so that you could follow your heart, so that you could find yourself, so that you could live for yourself and be your selfish self. God made you for something so much bigger. My, my girls in this front row are thinking, there are many times we've, we've watched something or heard something, and we've talked about this theme, about following your heart, and how wrong it is, and how ubiquitous it is in entertainment. The point of everything is not you, right? It's not your family. It's not mankind, or it's not nature. It's not nothing. The point of everything is God. God made you for himself. God is the purpose, the end, the goal. That's why everything that is not God exists. Everything that is not God exists to point to God, to highlight God, to magnify God, to exalt God, to make much of God. It's all about God. To him are all things. Now this is probably the most famous question and answer in all catechisms. The question is, what's the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's a very good answer. The question that's worth probing is, you look at these two prepositional phrases, uh, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Those aren't really prepositional phrases. Those are infinitives. Okay. But anyway, you look at those and you ask, are they parallel? In other words, is it like saying, uh, my goal this afternoon is to spend some time with my daughters and then go swimming as a family. Those are parallel. Like they're two separate activities uh, and you don't do one by means of the other. It would be different than saying something like, my goal this afternoon is to spend some time with my daughters by swimming. Because I'm actually planning to take each of them on an individual date first. Then we're all going swimming as a family. Uh, So... You understand the difference when you say, I'm going to do something by means of another thing? The question is, what's this mean? To glorify God 
and to enjoy him forever. And there's a debate here actually about, uh, there's a comma here, to glorify God, comma, and to enjoy him forever. So I've heard some people who are uh, really well versed in the English language at the time that this was written. And they argue that actually because of that comma, this second phrase is subordinate somehow to this first phrase, which is, okay, that might be the case. Uh, well, either way, I like what, what John Piper suggested, is that you could be more specific by saying man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. I think that's what this means in its original, but this is more explicit in modern-day English. And I, I think that says it more clearly. Uh, and a lot of Christians talk about glorifying God as if it's its own thing. But I think it's more helpful to think of it as the overarching category and we do that by means of other activities. So we glorify God by how we live in various ways. So man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. There are two distinct parallel actions. Uh, when, when we, we glorify God when he satisfies us. And you said, why, is, why does this matter? Well, it matters because there's not a conflict between our responsibility to glorify God, that's a command, glorify God, you got to do that. Uh, there's not a conflict between that responsibility and then our desire to be happy. They go together. So our joy will be most full when we're feeling and thinking and acting in a way that makes much of God. So God is not just the supreme creator and the supreme king. He's the supreme treasure, the supreme pleasure. He is supremely satisfying. And when we live in accord with that reality... We get the joy, and God gets the glory. It's beautiful. Now, this reality is all over the Bible. I'm going to show you just a few places in Psalms, book of Psalms. Uh, you make known to me the path of life, not death. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. Your desires aren't at war with, with glorifying God. They go together. Uh, Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And then Psalm 43. Uh, then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with delight, O God, my God. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my soul faints for you, as in a dry and, le- and, and, and weary land where there's no water. So, I just would appeal to, to you all: don't be deceived that you'll be satisfied by anything other than God. Ultimately, whether it's sex, money, power, or some combination of those things, the only way to be ultimately satisfied is to enjoy God for who He is. And we can still enjoy God's gifts, but not as ends in themselves. So we can enjoy God's gifts. As gracious gifts from God, we can treasure God by enjoying his gifts. So the reason is that God made us for God, not for ourselves. And that's why an advertisement for a, a trail mix bar like this one makes sense. At the very top, it says, you've never felt more alive. You've never felt more insignificant. And at the very top, there are these two people at the peak of a, of a mountain and it's trying to get you to buy a trail mix bar. Like, what were, what were the advertisers thinking here? How would this appeal to humans? Well, it does appeal because we love it 
when we see grandeur and we feel small. That's why people go to the rim of the Grand Canyon, right? They love that feeling. Why, why do we like that feeling? Wouldn't we want to go like study ants or something where we're like, yeah, we're the, we're the kings. Why do we like seeing huge things? Why do we love that? And the reason, so my, my guess, the reason is that we love it because God made us for God. And we love it when we feel small, like we are, and acknowledge God as huge as he is. God is the end of all things. He's the supreme goal. So just to clarify, uh, or to summarize where we've been, uh, we, we looked at the first three prepositional phrases. From him are all things, through him are all things, to him are all things. So God's the source, means, and end of all things. The creator, the king, the goal. That is reality. Whether you acknowledge it or not, that's reality. So you could say, well, I don't believe that rocks are hard. Rocks are hard, uh, whether you acknowledge it or not. And you say, oh, I don't acknowledge this. This is true, whether you acknowledge it or not. It's reality. Now, God is the source, means, and end of all things. What, what follows from that? What, what comes next logically? So imagine with me, I mentioned the Grand Canyon a moment ago. Imagine that you walked up to the rim of the Grand Canyon with a friend. And you just took it all in. This huge chasm. You look around. And then you just yell out, Look how big I am! Nobody does that, right? What do people do? They, they, they gasp. They say, wow. They marvel. They feel little. And then they complete their joy by nudging their neighbor and say, Hey, look at that. That's what they do. That's what everybody does. And that's, that's, that's how we're made to operate because we're little and God's huge. So when we meditate on these three prepositional phrases, from him, through him, to him, are all things, you have to ask, therefore what? And the next line doesn't, in your Bible, the next word is not therefore. It says from him and through him and to him are all things to him. I think there's an implied therefore. So because from him and through him and to him are all things, therefore to him be glory forever. Amen. Therefore, therefore, God deserves glory forever. That's the logic. God deserves glory forever. Now, this theme is all over Scripture, that God and God alone deserves glory forever. Let me show you just a, just a sampling. Exodus 14. God says to Moses, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. The psalmist recounts in Psalm 106, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They didn't remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them, he saved his people, for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. God describes his people in Isaiah as those whom I created for my glory. The people whom I formed for myself for this purpose, that they might declare my praise. The Lord says in Ezekiel, I acted for the sake of my name. Again, that's just a sampling of scriptures that teach this thing. 
God does what he does for his own glory, and glory is what he deserves. Again, here's a a sampling of some other scripture passages that teach this, that God deserves glory forever. End of Romans 16. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Galatians 1. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3. To him, to God, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And to Philippians 4. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 2 Timothy 4. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And 1 Peter 4. Uh, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. There's a few more in Revelation. Revelation 1. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 4. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And finally, Romans, uh, Revelation 7. Blessing and honor, excuse me, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's just a sampling. But do you see a pattern? Who knows a pattern? Who deserves glory? God, Jesus Christ. For how long? Forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, that was the pattern. So our problem is that God, the problem is not that God deserves glory. Our problem is that we steal that glory. We're glory thieves. So God is supremely glorious. He deserves glory. And we foolishly, sinfully try to take it from him. We're sinners, and to compound how bad we are, we don't think our sin is that big of a deal. So listen to one definition of sin. This is an older definition from John Piper. He says, sinning is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that doesn't treasure God over all other things. And the bottom of sin, the root of all sinning, is such a heart. A heart that prefers anything above God. A heart that doesn't treasure God over all other persons and all other things. What is sin? Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. Why is it that people can become emotionally and morally indignant over poverty and exploitation and prejudice and abortion 
and the infractions of religious liberty and the manifold injustices of man against man and yet feel little or no remorse or indignation or outrage that God is disregarded, disbelieved, disobeyed, dishonored, and thus belittled by millions and millions of people in the world? And the answer is sin. And that is the ultimate outrage of the universe. All of us are sinners, and as sinners, we seek glory for ourselves. We put ourselves in the place of God. We trust our own senses, our own experience, our own reasoning. We think we know better than God does, and so we disregard God. We disbelieve God. We disobey God, and thus we belittle God because we want the glory. We're glory thieves. And that offends the white-hot holiness of the supremely glorious God. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar's question in Daniel 4 illustrates this really well negatively. He asks, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built from me, by my mighty power as a royal residence, through me, and for the glory of my majesty, to me? See that right there? Babylon is from me, through me, and to me. I built it. I built it by my mighty power, and I built it for my glory. That negatively illustrates Romans 11.36. What folly it is to think that anything is from you and through you and to you. God alone deserves glory as the source and means and end of all things. And therefore to him and him alone belongs glory forever. Psalm 115 says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory to, know, to your name, give glory. So to conclude here, the message of Romans 11.36 is that God is supreme. From him, through him, to him are all things. God is the source of all things as the supreme creator. God's the means of all things as the supreme king. And God is the end of all things as the supreme goal. Therefore, this, this follows from those three beautiful truths. Therefore, to him be glory forever. Therefore, God deserves glory forever. I'd like us to exult in that. I'm going to pray. And we're going to respond by singing as we exult in this truth. So pray with me. Thank you, God, that you are supreme. We savor your supremacy in all things. You're the source, the means, and the end of of all things. You are the supreme creator, the supreme king, and the supreme goal. And therefore, you deserve glory forever. Amen. Amen.